Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day seven of the 7 a.m. Novelist March March Writing Challenge. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Today we have two wonderful authors, Hess Phillips and Christopher Boucher, and they're going to talk to us about creating characters based on real people, and they're coming from very different angles on this. So I'm really excited to have them both on. Good morning, you two. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hess Phillips was raised next door to a chicken farm in rural Pennsylvania. You know, I like anyone that was raised next door to a chicken farm. I just do. They're just likable. Um, she, but she now lives in Spain. So she's on a different, she is not up at 7 a.m. Their debut novel, you're cheating. Their debut novel, Lightborn, about the death of Christopher Marlowe, was a finalist for the Irish Writers Center Novel Fair 2022 and will be published by Atlantic Books in the UK in 2024. Yay! We're very excited because Hess was one of our own in the novel incubator. They also have a PhD in drama from Tufts University and are a very proud graduate of Grub Street's uh, novel incubator program. Christopher Boucher received his MFA in creative writing from Syracuse University in 2002. Chris is the author of the novels. All of his novels have great titles. So listen to this. He's the author of the novels, How to Keep Your, Volks your Volkswagen Alive, Golden Delicious, and Big Giant Floating Head, which was a 2019 Massachusetts Book Award finalist. Um, he is also the editor of Jonathan Latham's More Alive and Less Lonely on Books and Writers. He's an associate professor of the practice of English at Boston College and the managing editor of Post Road Magazine. Fantastic. So I'm so excited to have both of you on. So today, again, we're talking about how to how to work with real life characters. So Hess has written her um, historical novel uh, is based again on Christopher Marlowe and uh, trying to bring back to life someone that is is quite well known historically. And they really also wanted to reveal things that weren't as well known about his um, Christopher Marlowe, but also having to work within you know. Christopher Marlowe was born in a certain year. Christopher Marlowe died in a certain year. How much do you have to pay attention to that? Um, you know, other writers writing maybe about other famous people. This might be interesting to you. And then Chris has been writing his most recent book, particular, he had a character who was also named Chris Boucher. Um, and Chris, I think you said your mother was also in that book. And, and Chris also told us that his mother is currently taking care of his kids in the room next to him. So she's right there. And so if she disagrees with him about anything during the podcast, um, we will hear that. Okay, but we're going to start with Hess because we decided to start chronologically. So Hess, how have you dealt with working off someone that actually was a real historical figure? I mean, it's a huge question. It's, I know. But, I realize um, as I ask the yeah. question, I like to ask big, impossible questions. Okay. Well, I mean, to to begin at the beginning, I suppose I um, I developed this this obsession with Christopher Marlowe kind of early on in life. I um, I discovered one of his books on a shelf when I was about fourteen years old, and. And soon after that, started to learn details about him that um, made it pretty clear that that he was a, a queer person like I was, you know, I was discovering myself at the time, too. And so in a way, I, I sort of discovered myself through Marlowe and and through his plays. And I always wanted to write to about really, Marlowe. It's a perfect, it's perfect way to bring that person to us in the present right like you're finding something of yourself 
in that person. So that's that's a huge that's a huge process. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I think all authors write themselves into their characters a little yeah. bit. It's inevitable that we're going to end up doing that. Um, yeah. So I mean, there's a, a little bit of me and Marlo too, I suppose. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting process because you know there's this this sense of communing with the dead that occurs. And, um, you know, I'm, as I'm writing about Marlowe, I'm trying to find those places where uh, these sort of entry points into the character. Um, I think actually, uh, Nina McLaughlin was talking about that with uh, mythology the other day on the podcast. And it reminded me of this process with Marlowe too, is that you, you're, you're looking for things in the historical record that, that, mm -hmm sort of speak to you and illuminate something about this person. So that was part of, I mean, that was a big part of the research process for me was just going in through what we know about Marlowe, which is actually vanishingly little and um, just piecing together a person who could have done these things, who could have uh, behaved in this way and then trying to sort of almost reverse engineer a human being through that information. It's, you know, well, what motivated him to behave in this way? What was, what else was going on in his life that we don't know about? And um, yeah, I mean, eventually uh, a person starts to emerge out of this murk. Um, they're not just a ghost anymore. They have flesh and blood and bones. And, and that's like the most exciting part of the process, really. <laughs> Yeah, and you really get into him physically, like those flesh and blood and bones are, are very much on the page. Um, and so you also dealt with, and if for those of you that are uh, listening to the podcast, you can't see that she's got a little doll of Shakespeare behind her. Um, you also had the character of Shakespeare in the in the earlier versions of the novel, but now you've um, shortened his parts. Were there reasons why you did that? Because he's such a famous person? Were you hitting problems or were you just, was it just a matter of focus? Um, I think it was a matter of focus in the end. Um, you you probably remember what Lightborn was when I started. It was yeah. this, this huge sprawling tome of a book with um, three different time periods. One was set in 2010 one was with William Shakespeare, one was with Marlowe, and it, it just was this, this huge ball of, of spaghetti. Um, and I think when I finally decided, you know what, this, this story is about Marlowe. It's not about Shakespeare. It's not about some actors in 2010 trying to perform one of Marlowe's plays. It, it's about Marlowe and who he was and what he went through as uh, a queer man in this time period where it was very dangerous to be that and not just a queer man but also one who didn't agree with the state religion that was imposed at the time yeah. um and so i wanted to that was the story i wanted to tell and uh yeah that's that's when shakespeare got the boot <laughs> and i think that's really important when you're working in a historical novel to kind of you know get rid of the chaff the all all the extras because otherwise you can get mired in and so much thing so many things that are just interesting um uh, but i think i think the key is finding yourself in that historical character because that's also how the reader is going to find their way in too right yeah absolutely and i mean i i think when you're writing about that particular time and those particular people you feel the presence of Shakespeare looming over everything to such an extent that I almost felt like I had to include him in earlier drafts, but 
you know, part of it is realizing that, yeah, these are just people. Shakespeare, too. He was just a guy. I mean, maybe he was really good at what he did, but, you know, lots of people are. And, um, you know, being able to focus on what I really wanted to focus on was uh, was really when the book came together for me and when Marlowe came together as a character, too. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And so and then, Chris, so your your most recent book is almost, I don't know, experimental autofiction or how would you how would you typify that? Gosh, that's a great it's a great question. I mean, I, I have to say, so I had this kind of break in graduate school, like an aesthetic break where I had been writing more mainstream stuff. And it was kind of like, you know, um, fiction framed, you know, and I it, like, which is to say it wasn't, it didn't really ostensibly have much to do with me. It wasn't autobiographical in any way. And then I started write. I started reading a lot of more experimental work and then writing more experimental work. And I think one of the things that intrigued me by it from the get-go was that I would start with the germ of something real, and then I would let it spin into wildly surreal territory, yeah. you know? And so that kind of tightrope was one that really intrigued me, which was to say sort of some sort of signal that this has a germ of reality in it, but also many, many signals that this is not real and that, you know, that this is not factual in any way. Right. Um, and that I would say has been a little bit of a, of a journey from book to book to book. It kind of amps up and distorts. And with the new one, with the newest one, Big Giant Floating Head, you know, happily it took on a different shape than it had in the past, which was kind of fun for me. So I didn't actually start that book thinking that the protagonist would have my name. Mm, right. And then I have a really wonderful writers group and and one day I remember I met them for dinner and uh, I was just about to sit down and they were like, hey, we read the manuscript. One thing, this is all one person because it was going to be different. It was going to be short stories. And I went, what? And then I brought it to, uh, it, it, it gradually cohered over time with my writing group so that it, it, be, it became clear that if I was going to tell the stories I wanted to tell, the protagonist was going to have to have my name. And then that involved a lot of like, complicated conversations with people around me to make sure that it could that a book like that could live in the world you know but the fact that there was so much signaling that this is this this person has my name but is clearly not me in many ways made it made it easier to do that that distortion has always been a key component for me right right because a lot of memoirists are dealing with the same thing that they they're putting themselves on the page and they also have to they have to make themselves a character on the page um, so that we actually see them on the page and, and that a persona on the page. And that becomes very difficult. But you were both putting a persona of yourself on the page and then also distancing yourself from that persona in some way, creating creating a kind of fantastical Chris Boucher. Um, I mean, so what do you mean by complicated conversations? Well, <laughs> so, you know, my, my ex-wife, for example, like... Uh, there is a character of an ex-wife in that in that in the book and we're still we still have a really good sort of rapport and relationship and and so i you know she read the manuscript and i made it like I, I with every step with my mother as well you know my mother was portrayed probably more so in the first two books than the third book yeah. and not always in a positive light but in a way that i felt like was true and fair and she's always been one of my first readers, you know, and she she's a librarian and she was kind of 
as responsible for my writing life as anybody on the planet. And so I, I would give kind of give a heads up and maybe run these things by people before I went to the publisher with them. Because, you know, the thing that excited me, I think about a lot of these projects was what felt like total creative freedom. And I wanted to let that, let that roll. But then there's a point when you think, well, this is a book in the world. That's a different ethical position. That means different things for the people who see themselves echoed on the page. And that, like that led back to, well, what am I distorting here? And, and what, what, you know, what actual message am I, am I sending? And can I, can I stand behind it? So I, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty lucky that all of those people who I kind of invoked in some fictional way were very generous, right. Yeah. And, and thoughtful and supportive of the of fiction as fiction, but I don't think it hurt that it's clearly fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that ethically again is the best way to go. I think have you found authors that have avoided that? Like avoided, I think some authors avoid that and they don't want to be there. Like, this is my writerly freedom. I don't want to change anything. I just want to put it out there, which which feels very problematic to me. I, I mean, I remember in a conversation in grad school about this with, you know, where the, the it was like a Friday afternoon chat with faculty about how do you write about people who are still alive? You know, yeah. and I got the sense that it it is fraught, right? Um, yeah. You know, and I I think it's fraught for really good reasons. You know, there's this there's this pretty great article um, uh, on electric literature by John Cotter in which he kind of walks through like your aesthetic goals and also your like you know issues of defamation. And I think those things need to be part of the conversation. You know, when you're bringing in when you're signaling the real world, I think you know the real world then has a role. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I remember uh, reading part of my first novel to my family because some of it is based on their their parents and and grandparents. And I remember my family would always get around to get together and and share stories. And so I was actually sharing stories about them from a novel, and I was terrified. Um, and I did find I did find that even though these weren't typically big readers actually um in this group and particularly not um, readers of much fiction they were um extremely generous um and extremely polite and i actually my uncle who was kind of the patriarch of the family actually stood up at one of my readings and she said michelle is my niece and she got it right and i was shocked because i don't necessarily think i got it right but the fact that he said it and put his blessing on it so i i have found um for i think for people that are also kind of nervous about sharing with family or sharing with the people that are in um in their books i i would i would i would give them a little bit of a chance i i have found that people are much more generous um in 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 their feedback and their understanding of what you're doing than, than we than our fears bring us to to expect chris would you have changed anything um, I think I would have, it certainly would have given me pause. I think I would have changed something if, um, I mean, you know, I think I have kind of cocooned myself in such a strange creative, like a, such a, such a strange fictional universe that that is a little bit of a safety net, you know, but I certainly would have thought a little bit about my portrait if I had felt like this is going to resonate with people in a way that's painful, you know? Um, so I think I, yeah, I think I, I think I would certainly consider it. I really want to make space for creativity, you know, and for the creative act. But, you know, I also don't want, I want to be able to read it out loud and have people feel comfortable, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
And even though it's fiction, I think some people say, well, it's fiction, it doesn't matter, but you know, you're still living in the real world. Um, so it's something to pay attention to. Um, Hess, a similar question that someone also brings up in the chat, what about changing historical facts about historical figures, having their spouses die earlier than they did, giving them nasty traits? Do you have thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, the whole time that, that Chris was talking, I was thinking, oh, yes, the experts, <laughs> they're scary <laughs> people to come up against yeah. because they're out there and, you know, they will notice things that you do incorrectly. Um, and yeah, sometimes you, you have to change the facts in order to tell a good story. It just comes with the territory. I definitely play fast and loose with a few facts in my book, um, but I, I think it depends on why you're doing it exactly. What is what is motivating that change? Um, are you just changing things around willy nilly because you're you don't want to do the research? <laughs> you're feeling lazy today, or are you trying to have a much bigger conversation about something um, that this particular historical figure can can be the, the center of? You know, um, I think that's what I'm trying to do anyway with Lightborn. Um, and with Christopher Marlowe is is use him as the the center point of a much bigger conversation about uh, the closet, about the violence of the closet, um, about oppressive regimes and and things like that. So, you know, uh, yeah, I, I definitely play with the facts a little bit in order to make that conversation happen in a few places. But um yeah, so I think it really depends on what motivates it. Yeah, yeah. Can you give a specific example of something you decided to change? Oh, boy. Um, so I changed around a few dates of yeah. certain things that happen. Um, there are, you know, there there's a timeline of Marlowe's life that is, like I said, it's pretty scant. You know, we have maybe a few events per year of his life, if that. Some yeah. years of his life, we have nothing. We don't know, have no idea what he was doing. So um, in some cases, I would take an event that happened one year and move it to another, just in order to make the, the timeline match up with, with what I was trying to do. Um, yeah. I definitely uh, invent some details. I, I invent a lot about the way the play Edward II was received in its time. We actually don't know how it was received. We really have no idea. So, so um, I end up inventing this kind of performance history for it at the time um, in order to, again, sort of serve that conversation. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the the timeline problems with working with historical fiction and real characters is such a, it's, it's such a problem because if you actually pay, if you actually follow the original timeline, you can lose so much tension. And it also adds just a lot of mess to the book. Um, you know, you, and so it's helpful to kind of simplify, make things more cohesive. Um, and I guess, I guess the trick is just making it, you know, this is still the real story, or this is even more the real story. Yeah. And I mean, at, at its heart, you know, even though we are writing about real people, we're still writing characters. They still have to be driven by certain desires, you know. Um, and in order to to keep that cohesive, sometimes, yeah, we have to massage the facts a little bit. So yeah. it, it, it again, it's just the mechanics of writing, I think, sometimes. <laughs> right. And then um, so, Chris, what are the for you the benefits 
of drawing in real people to your work? Well, can you, maybe you can't imagine not doing it. No, I, you know, <clears throat> um, I've always been, I, I just wanted to say what Hess says about that, that intention to me, that's really the key. I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I tell my students at BC that I think fiction sometimes gives us the chance to write something that can be kind of truer than the true. Yeah. You know, that it, and there, I'm sure we all, we, we all have a lot of models of like, we know a, a real, a real life narrative, and then we know the fictional version of it. And the fictional version of it is, is massaging the, the facts in order to tell a better story, or maybe in order to get to some sort of emotional or, you know, thematic place that the real life story didn't quite get to. Um, but, you know, Michelle, I think I've always been psyched about those books that surprise me as books, right? Like they, they make me think, wait, I didn't, you know, where's the, where's the line here? You know, the line, yeah. has, because some of the, some of the books that really made me want to write are books that do just that. I didn't think the book could work that way. And I think when I started writing about my life in ways that were clearly not my life, um, yeah. that was my way of moving the line a little bit. It felt to me like it was charged. There's risk involved with writing about the real world in ways that your reader is also participating in that world, you know? And I mean, so like an an early version of that, for example, was that <clears throat> in my first book, I, you know, it's a, largely about my father. And I had this character, the memory of my father, who's like this character throughout, kind of like this ghost, but my father is also a character in the book, you know? And I that charge that I was working with real material um, in a clearly fictional way, uh, both of those things need to be on the page at the same time for me to give it that, you know, um that energy i think yeah yeah i love that i love that um uh, we have a, one question in the chat if the story is based on real people or real people consolidated and true inc incidents but combined without right and without right fiction from a commercial perspective are you better off marketing it as fiction or auto fiction i actually don't think in this case there's a difference like they don't put auto fiction and fiction on different shelves correct or maybe I'm wrong with that. I, I, you know, I'm of the opinion that the autofiction conversation is, is, you know, um, temporary, you know, that yeah. I don't, I don't think that that autofiction is necessarily marketed differently. Um, although it's certainly part of the conversation and it's a really good question. Um, I think that my, my example is probably a little more extreme than many writers with regards to like, it's auto, it kind of wears autofiction, you know, on its sleeve. Yeah. Um, in a way that I'm kind of hoping maybe subverts the the auto fiction label, but um, but I, you know, I from from a marketing perspective, I haven't had a whole lot of experiences where auto fiction has been front and center. I think you market it as fiction, and I I do think that, you know, the astute reader when they're reading fiction, I think you know with regards to like some of the things Hess was talking about, they know they know that they're negotiating a writer working with information. And that that writer's hand, you can kind of, they should be able to sense the brushstrokes, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And you talk about having um, loving novels that give you some surprise element of how they're working and expectations. And I absolutely think that yours do that. Um, that's part of the delight of, of reading your work. Um, also something to think about, you know, I think a lot of writers are like, well, I, well I'm writing fiction, so it doesn't matter. I can't be sued. <laughs> 
and this is incorrect. <laughs> you can still be sued. It doesn't mean that their lawsuit will, it, your, their lawsuit might not be successful, but you can still be sued. So you probably want to look again at your intentions um, and, and getting it down on the page and, you know, be, you know, a little careful with that because you might still have to get yourself a lawyer and, 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 and work through those problems. And again, you know, if, if they, their lawsuit might be frivolous, it might not work at all, but, but you're still stepping on the toes of, of real people. So just to be aware of that. Um, Hess, a, a question I think for you, um, well, both of you, when there are fundamental gaps in the story, but there is a final situation that needs to be reached and there are a few incoherences, do you have any suggestions about what to follow in terms of the facts or whatnot? Or does that make sense to you? Yeah. You, I mean, you have I, an idea, I, like a final thing that you're trying to reach. Yeah, I definitely ran up against that. Yeah. Um, the the death of Christopher Marlowe is one of those those ongoing murder mysteries with a lot of conspiracies built around it, some completely bonkers and some, you know, maybe a little bit closer to the truth. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of had to it, figure out where I was going to put myself on that line, um, what made sense for the story I was trying to tell. And I think that's what it really came down to is, you know, what actually makes sense? What makes sense for the characters to do in this moment? Um, yeah. You know, so once I once I, I knew the characters well enough to have a sense of what drove them, it made that it made that final scene, the murder scene, really gel at last for me. But um, it definitely went through a lot of iterations before it got to that point because, yeah, I was uh, being influenced by lots of different ideas and I had to figure out where I stood, you know. Yeah, yeah. I had an odd experience with my first book. Again, it's a historical novel based on some real life um, uh, family stories. Um, I had to fill in some things. And so what I did was just try to follow the characters emotionally as much as I could and what I'd already built in uh, for the characters emotionally and what I thought made sense for them emotionally. Um, but it was entirely speculative. Um, and I'd actually discovered later that what I had written was very close um, in line with what actually happened when I actually wow. found out the real story, which was really spooky. That was really, and I was like, oh, I guess I got that right. Um, I know. I don't even know how that happened. Um, Chris, are you still working in this vein? Um, or do you feel like, oh, I want to get away from. <laughs> I, I don't feel that way, you know, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it, it feels, you know, like my first book, when I appeared as a character, or at least when the speaker appeared, I was, just, it was just an underline. And so this, you know, it has been a little bit of like a, this is probably overstating it, like a little bit of a semiotic evolution for me, you know, to think about how the real world plays into the work. And that still seems like part of my project. So I'm still, it still feels like really rich territory for me. And, and I guess I would say it's kind of delightful to say, to think about your, what's going on in your life and the way that that translates to the page. That still seems to me like a really fresh yes. question. You know, it's, it seems like it's very close to what we all do when we sit down to write, regardless of the, of the paradigm or the terms we're always kind of inviting in the real world so yeah i'm still i'm still in that place 
Fantastic. And Hess, do you think you're still going this direction? Historical fiction is your is your game? Yeah, I can't seem to shake it, man. It's it's a monkey on my back. No, I yeah, I, I love the time period. I love the ability to to try and tell these stories of people who are, you know, more in the margins of history in particular. Yeah. And there's so much, there's so much untold. It's just yeah. this this endless well of interesting material. And yeah, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. All right. We're going to have to finish up so I can get these folks to the writing desk. You can find our full March writing challenge schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can subscribe there for updates and take part in the discussion. And if you want to join our daily uh, live webinars this month, you can still email me at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You can also find the podcast version of these webinars on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow rate and even review our podcast so that other people can find us. All right, Chris and Hess, are you guys going to be able to get any writing done today? I mean, I'm buzzing right now. I don't know. We'll see if I can focus. <laughs> I am, I am absolutely. The next thing I'm doing, I'm bringing my kids to school and then it's to the writing desk. Excellent. That's what I want to hear. Okay, everyone else, we're going to follow the buzz and we're going to get right back to the writing desk. Thank you so much and have a fabulous morning. There isn't nothing here at all.